Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, your host for this week and Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy Program. It's been a decade since the global economic crisis. Today, we reflect on where the economy is now, where there are risks in emerging economies, and what it all means for energy markets. Joining me to provide some insight on market risks and trends is Joyce Chang, Global Head of Research for J.P. Morgan Chase. Her team recently published 10 Years After the Global Financial Crisis, which explores the changes in the financial market and the future of the global economy. Thanks for being here, Joyce. Uh, Great to be here, Sarah. So a lot's happened since the financial crisis. You know, we saw central banks leveraging quantitative easing. Various regulatory frameworks were introduced for banks. Um, There was an increase in amount of global sovereign debt, especially in developed markets. And Joyce, you followed this probably more closely than anybody. What are some of the lasting effects for emerging markets and their energy sectors? Uh, Yes, so we see major changes to the global economy in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And maybe I can just um, highlight a few of those changes. Um, So for the the first thing, just the central bank's QE programs have contributed to a total tradable universe for global bond markets, increasing to $57 trillion compared to only $27 trillion before the financial crisis. Um, In the ETF market, we've actually seen a growth from about $800 billion to $5 trillion. So we've had enormous growth in the financial um, assets. But we've also seen um, lasting macro effects that have accompanied this. you know, um, and I think the ones that uh, we have focused on in this report include just an increase um, in the public sector indebtedness levels. Mm-hmm. The legacy cost of the global financial crisis has been a 41 percentage point surge in developed market public sector debt as a share of GDP. Wow. Um, and we have seen gross debt of the global public sector surging from 65 percent of GDP um, you know, to 92 um, percent um, you know, at present. Um, we um, also see higher fiscal deficits. Um, one of our concerns next year is that you will see the U.S. fiscal deficit reach 5.4% of GDP. And this compares to only 1.1% of GDP back in 2007. Um, but lower potential growth is also one of the, um, one, one of, one of the, the outcomes of the global financial crisis. Um, there was a significant loss of output um, in 2008-2009 compared to the pre-crisis path. And we believe that global potential growth has dropped to about 2.7% over the past decade. So that's a decline of 0.3 percentage points for developed markets and even greater for emerging markets at 1.6% um, of the percentage points of GDP. Wow. So I can imagine that some of the things that you just spoke about that were, you know, hallmarks of the changes since the financial crisis, maybe what some people think of as risks and vulnerabilities. But, you know, looking ahead, what are the key risks and vulnerabilities that you guys see in emerging markets? Um, And then, you know, are the risks and vulnerabilities for, you know, energy sector investment different now than than a decade ago? So we've had to take down our emerging markets um, forecast um, this year. Um, and we think that EM growth is set to stumble a little longer than we previously expected because countries outside of Argentina and Turkey are f- also feeling the squeeze from tighter financial conditions. But um, specific to Turkey and Argentina, those are going to become significant drags on EM aggregate growth in the coming quarters. And outside of these countries, we see a slowdown in China. 
Um, we've taken down our China growth forecast to 6.1 percent for 2019. Um, as uh, the trade tensions are actually taking you know a toll on China, but also um, having an impact across other emerging markets countries. So we believe that China will offset some of the expected decline in growth from the t- trade tensions by allowing the currency to depreciate. Um, we're actually looking at a um, potential for um, China's currency to depreciate by around 8% next year, which has knock-on effects to the rest of the emerging markets' um, currencies. Um, I think that, um, you know, the, um, so you're not going to necessarily see a trough in the EM growth um, until sometime into 2019. So I, I think the um, market will remain, you know, focused on some of the downside pressures, um, you know, for emerging markets coming from China and the impact of further tariffs and also from um, renminbi weakness in response to some of these downside risks. Maybe staying on China for a second, I mean, how do you characterize some of the risks emanating from China? You know, on the one hand, we hear a lot about how the transition that they're attempting to make in their economy is quite difficult, but and that they have notable sort of you know fiscal challenges. But on the other hand, you know some China watchers suggest that China has shown you know good a bit of agility and capacity to deal with these problems. What do you think? I mean, how 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 steeply should we rate this um, the the risk coming from from China not being able to handle it? Well, I mean, China does have capacity, but they don't have the type of capacity they had at the time of 2008 in the global financial crisis. I mean, back in 2008, um, China had provided um, you know, a, a very large stimulus uh, you know, in the order of 7% of GDP, um, which um, was one of the um, – which, which had really um, you know, helped mitigate some of the impact of the crisis um, on other countries. Now, given the size of China's fiscal deficit and also the increase in debt burden that came after 2008, they can provide some stimulus measures, but nowhere in the order of what they provided in 2008. And we do think um, that if the 25% tariff is applied on all Chinese imports into the U.S. next year, we think that could take as much as one percentage point off of China's GDP growth. And we think that would be offset by a combination of factors an 8% depreciation um, of renminbi against the dollar in terms of the full-year average and also um, fiscal policy measures. But the um, augmented fiscal deficit um, you know, in China is quite large. We estimated at 11.3% of GDP. So you can't do the type of stimulus they did a decade ago. And, um, and, and, and we do think, though, that you know, China continues to have um, ample foreign exchange reserves. Um, North of three trillion dollars. Um, the debt is also, you know, largely domestically owned. I mean, foreigners only own about two percent um, of the debt, and um, you know, the consumption has also moved to more of a consumption-led economy, which is more than fifty percent of GDP right now. But the trade tariffs, we do think, will um, have an impact on growth. So this is uh, probably the second or third time you've brought up some the trade tariffs, and and with regard particularly to Chinese economic growth. But what do you think about the the tariffs as they currently stand and how you think about them going forward, some of these trade disputes? what How should we be thinking about the the sort of broad drag it could have on global economic growth? Is really is China sort of the nexus of what to watch there, or could it f- impact things more broadly? Well, I mean, look, every um, China impacts emerging markets. Yeah. Um, 
you know, every one percentage point decline in Chinese growth actually takes about half a percentage point off of global growth and and, and, and 0.7% off of emerging markets growth. And for commodity exporters like Latin America, it's more than one to one. I mean, every one percentage point decline in Chinese growth takes like 1.1% off of Latin American growth. So it's very hard to separate the China story from the overall emerging market story. But the first order effects have been manageable, and China already allowed the currency to weaken over the last year, offsetting some of those um, impacts that could have played out on the growth numbers. Um, so, But the second order effects are really what we're more concerned about. Um, the impact on sentiment and confidence, also the um, you know, impact across um, the supply chain. Um, remember that only 60% of China's exports are made in China. 40% of exports are um, you know, re-exported from China. So you have these reverberations that will play off um, across some of the other Asian markets as well from the, the measures that have been announced. And are you looking for particular, you know, government policies or changes or kind of, is there a way in which governments can intervene in some of these uh, conditions? I mean, I think the, I guess the trade dispute one is uh, pretty obvious or self-evident. It's to try and settle some of these issues. But are there other, you know, uh, policy measures that you're looking at for different governments to try and um, bolster what they're seeing in terms of, of weakening growth? Well, uh, well, I think that you know, countries that have the capability are undertaking some fiscal stimulus measures. But for many emerging markets, um, you know, what they're trying to do is make sure that they have enough self-insurance through the foreign exchange reserve. But ultimately, I, I think that many of these countries, um, you know, have allowed the exchange rate to do much of the adjustments. So and we've seen weaker emerging markets FX over the past year, really across all regions. Um, and I think that there's um, a risk that some of that will continue um, if the trade um, you know, tensions persist. So I think the currency adjustment has been sort of one of the first lines of defense used by countries. Then it's been to undertake some fiscal stimulus measures in addition to negotiations um, and the ongoing you know, dialogue um, you know, that, that all countries are trying to have around these issues. Mm-hmm. Now, and and the IMF has started to talk about these longer term risks to global economies from persistent inequality in many countries. Is anyone tackling this problem in a way that should be emulated? And and how do you factor in sort of these longer term systemic issues of inequality into your into your outlooks? Well, I mean, we've done a lot of work on looking at um, how income inequality rose um, during the global financial crisis. And this was, you know, evident across developed markets um, and emerging markets. Um, And, you know, what we've looked at is just, um, you know, the share of income, uh, you know, that's gone to the top, you know, 10% of the population. And you can see actually that in countries like China and India, um, that's where you actually had some of the sharpest um, increases in um, just, you know, the polarization of income going to, um, you know, relatively smaller um, number of people. So I think there's, you know, broader awareness, uh, you know, on this topic because, you know, much of the rise of the populist parties, I think, is related to this whole, you know, phenomena of, um, you know, polarization of income. So I think it's been harder to take policy measures, um, you know, to address this. But the outcome is very clear that you have had a, a move away from establishment parties 
to populist parties across developed markets and emerging markets. And and is the important feedback loop here really through politics, or is it both that you know inequality leads to this sort of populist kind of politics that you're talking about, but does it also have an impact on things like productivity or competitiveness within you know within these economies? How do you guys think about the issue? Well, I, I mean, I think that the, the, the politics is, um, you know, the, the most obvious one. I mean, we've really moved away from multilateralism into a much more multipolar world. Um, and, you know, it, it's not just about emerging markets. I mean, the U.S., you know, has seen the same phenomena um, occur. And I think, you know, it does lie in the rising income and wealth inequality. Um, you know, the income inequality has risen in most con- most countries although it's had large variations in the magnitude. And just to go through some of the um, numbers, if you look at the top 10% income share, which I think captures the shifts happening at the extremes of income distribution, um, you know, the rise has been more moderate in Europe, but it's increased rapidly in the United States, in China, and in India to about you know, 45 to 50% of total income in 2017. So, um, you know, there's, you know, and, and you've seen that in the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America, the income inequality, you know, has remained relatively stable, but it was already at extremely high levels. So, you know, the hopes that you would have just, you know, this growth of the middle class, I mean, some of that was stalled, um, you know, by um, the global financial crisis. Um, and, um, and, I, and I think that um, if you take a look at the, you know, distribution of household wealth, um, this has changed rapidly over the past five years. I'm looking at some of the data points. The wealth inequality is much larger than the income inequality. Um, the wealth inequality has also risen more sharp, sharply as you've had the asset price appreciation given the growth of financial assets, and that's boosted the wealth um, concentration. So I think you know we look at both the, the income and the wealth effects, um, how much of that has occurred through sort of, um, you know, financial asset prices. Um, but we've also seen, um, you know, along with, uh, um, you know, a- along with this disparity, that productivity has decline has, you know, um, occurred, you know, a- across developed markets um, and emerging markets. Um, now, much of this is actually because of demographic forces. You know, I wouldn't necessarily just say that it's because of the global financial crisis, but we estimate that global productivity growth has fallen by roughly one percentage point on average since 2012. Um, the fall in emerging markets um, has been, you know, more striking, um, you know, and has been the most striking. And this has been, um, you know, a, a very broad-based deterioration in supply-side performance. Um, and it explains, um, you know, also why global unemployment rates have fallen rapidly, even as the pace of GDP growth over the course of the recovery has been relatively modest. Do you, I mean, you talk to companies and investors uh, and governments around the world. Do you, do you find any particular region or country that's sort of tackling some of these inequality or longer-term structural issues head on? I, I think that, you know, it, it's still a relatively recent phenomenon. So, you know, there's um, a, a, an awareness of this and a, and a desire to put in programs that generate more jobs, that promote small businesses. But it's hard to say that you can necessarily measure those impacts um, on an incremental basis at this time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, Joyce, some of our podcast listeners might find it funny that we're having this sort of broad uh, macroeconomic conversation 
you know, without talking about energy. But one of the things that, you know, we note is we talk a lot about supply side factors, particularly in you know, oil markets and things like that. But but one of the biggest, you know, determiners for um, uh, for the shape of energy markets, no matter what they are, is is GDP, right? And and it's the strength of growth around the world. Just in broad terms, you know, what are you telling uh, your uh, clients and and the people that you sort of advise on these things about what this kind of you know macroeconomic outlook might mean for energy? Well, I mean, you know, we we've had um, you know our, our forecasts um, for oil next year is at you know, eighty-three dollars, and so this is actually a sweet spot for oil for <laughs> you know the emerging markets growth relationship. But what we're seeing this time is that the rise in spot and forecast oil prices, you know, has been happening against the backdrop of slowing fundamentals, despite this lift in robust uh, lift in oil prices that's usually associated with emerging markets growth. We're just not seeing the same correlation um, this um, time around, hmm. and this is explained, you know, by um, in, in part by the lack of, you know, constructive high-frequency data. Um, in some cases, the oil prices have merely been offsetting the downside risk to activity, like in economies like Latin America, where other dynamics have been playing out, or in sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, what we've seen is that the previous relationship between emerging markets growth and oil, you know, it really hasn't been that linear um, this time. Even as we look at you know oil prices that you know um, you know you know approaching like the ninety dollar level, so I think that um, you know we're looking at the broader implication of higher oil prices, which will be through um, you know inflation, you know via the higher um, fuel costs. Um, you know, you, but you've had a lot of dynamics that have also changed um, over the past um, you know decade. I mean, there's more attention right now, you know, on just the Iran oil sanctions. Sure. Yes. Um, you know. Geopolitics is playing in oil, and this is going to continue to impact oil price and volatility. Um, just at a point where the markets seem like they're about balance, and um, you know the U.S. as the second largest producer of crude has changed the whole global oil dynamics as well, especially as they sell more crude into OPEC stronghold in Asia. Well, Joyce, I have always learned a lot when I talk to you, and it's been really great to sort of look at the changes that have happened since. Um, the financial crisis, and um, you know, maybe maybe not super positive to see all of the risks on the horizon to growth, but uh, but at the same time, you know, really informative for those of us who think about you know the global economy and, and the role that energy plays. Thanks very much for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you so much, Sarah. Great, great to be with you. Once again, I'm Sarah Ladislaw, and you've been listening to Energy 360.